you got to love the power of the pep talk, right? Um, Kirby Smart, um, he's a head coach for the University of Georgia Bulldogs. He gained some attention because in the national championship game against uh, Texas Christian University, he gave a pregame pep talk to his team. And it was boisterous. It was colorful. It was a lot of language that I'm not going to say up here. And, uh, but it got his team fired up. And if uh, the pregame pep talk was any indication of the way that they played, it was a pretty good pep talk. Um, and then I just think I, I love just going on YouTube and looking at like pregame speeches, halftime speeches, maybe from movies, maybe uh, real life ones. Uh, I think about Hoosiers, right? The pregame speech and from Hoosiers where Gene Hackman is just, uh, you know, the slow clap starts. It's great. It gets you ready to go play basketball. Um, I don't know if it's helping your jump shot, though. And so and then I think about William Wallace as he's leading uh, the Scots towards freedom. Right. And, and I don't know how they recorded that. And. 1200 or whenever that was, but they got it on video. Um, Mel Gibson was there. And then, uh, and you know, there's just, there's these pep talks that you have, these pregame speeches, there's this, uh, these things that you are going into, right? These big, large moments in your life or uh, in the lives of these athletes, maybe the lives of these um, army men, that they are going into this event and they have to pep themselves up. They have to encourage themselves to go into this next phase, go into this next thing that their life has in front of them. And I think that there are these big, loud, um, boisterous pep talks, and there's just everyday pep talks that we have, right? Maybe this is like a pep talk that you give yourself before a job interview, right? Maybe it's a pep talk before you um, have a presentation at work, I think of a parent maybe giving a pep talk to a child as they are leaving the car and going into school for that day. Maybe the parent gives them some encouragement to take as they go into school. Uh, maybe it's a dad giving himself a pep talk as he pulls into the driveway after a long day of work and he has to remind himself that what he's going into next is the most important part of his day, to be a good husband and to be a good father, and so muster whatever energy he has within him as he walks into the home. Or maybe it's a pastor before he goes on stage, remember to slow his thoughts and trust in the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to speak instead of himself, because he says some dumb things sometimes, and this is recorded. <laughs> some of these may have happened this morning. There's a power of the pep talk, these special moments that we move forward in different situations and we get our minds right. We get our hearts right. We prepare ourselves for what is to come. And in our text today, Peter is giving a pep talk to these Christians that he is writing this letter to. Remember that Peter is writing this letter of First Peter. He's writing it to these Christians in the area of Asia Minor, right? This modern day Turkey. And he's writing it specifically to believers. And he's saying, hey, I'm writing you this letter. And we can look at our text today. We're going to be in First Peter chapter 1, verse 13, 13 through 21, if you want to make your way there. But what we see today is he is saying, hey, if you are a Christian, and if you are living your life as a Christian, these are some of the things that you can look forward to. This is my pep talk to you as you are living your life as a follower of Jesus. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, we're going to pick it up there. And it starts with the word, therefore. 
So we know that when we see therefore, that means that we need to look back at what was said first before we can move forward into what is said next. Okay, so um, therefore, therefore what? In the first 12 verses of this letter, we see that Peter is writing about um, the beauty of the gospel. Peter is reminding these Christians who have placed their faith and their hope in Jesus. He is reminding them of the beauty of the gospel. They have been saved by Jesus. They have received salvation through the grace of Jesus. And they are recipients of an inheritance, of an inheritance that is far greater than anything else this world has to offer. But they are um, inheritance. They are a child of God. They are sons and daughters of the King of God whose supply never ends. And even in the midst of trials, Remember, these people, they're being persecuted. They're being mocked. They're being killed because of what they believe. And he's saying, even in that persecution, even in those trials, you can have a great hope because of the salvation that Christ brings. And in that beautiful salvation that you were dead and now you are alive, the prophets of old didn't even understand what they were speaking about when they talked about it. The angels, the hosts of heaven, long to look at this salvation that you and I receive. That's how beautiful this gospel is. That's how beautiful this salvation is. And so if all of that is true, therefore, verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God." Our first point from the text today is eyes on the prize. We have to set our eyes on the prize that Jesus has given us because of this great salvation, because of this beautiful gospel that Peter has been talking about in the first 12 verses, we need to have hope in what Christ has done. We need to focus our eyes and our lives on Jesus and his salvation alone and not on anything else that this world has to offer. Set your eyes on the prize. The Apostle Paul has a very similar message in his letter that he's writing to the church at Colossae. So in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, we see it says, Set your minds on things above, not on things of earth, for you are in Christ. It's the same message as Peter's command that he gives us here. Peter's command is what? Set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus. But then he gives us these two, uh, what you call participles. He gives us these two actions that are associated with us setting our hope on the grace of Jesus. So the first one is preparing your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. The actual wording here in Greek is 
Gird up the loins of your mind. <laughs> what? <laughs> When's the last time you said the word loins? Um, so men in, in this time, the, the men, the Roman men, the Greek men, the uh, Israeli men, they would wear these long robes, right? They would go down to their ankles. They would look like dresses, but much, much more masculine. And uh, so it, you would easily stumble upon those. You would easily step on the, the loins, the loincloths that are um, hanging down around your ankles. And so as a woman who wears a dress, she kind of like picks it up on either side and does like this thing, you know? Uh, that's not masculine enough for men. So men can't do that. But men, they would, they would actually gird up the loins. That means that they would reach down, they would grab it, they would pull it and tie it into their belt. So they tie it around their waist so that their legs are a little more exposed so they can get ready to do work. They can get ready to do some action. They can get ready to run. They can get ready to walk on their journey. And they would not have any hindrance around their ankles that they could stumble upon. This phrase, what it really means is to be obedient to God. In the Old Testament, almost every single time we see this phrase, gird up their loins, it would be uh, like Elijah. God called Elijah to run ahead to a certain place. And it said, so Elijah girded up his loins and went. He was obedient to God. He was prepared to be obedient. He was prepared to go. He was prepared to do what God called him to do. So Christian, prepare your mind for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready to get to work. Remove any hindrance in your life that could cause you to stumble or trip. So what in your life could that be? What in your life is keeping you from being obedient to what God is calling you to do? What in your life, if God called you to do something today, what is the thing that would hold you back from doing that? The next thing, be sober-minded. So this doesn't really mean to be sober from alcohol, but I hope we're all good this morning. <laughs> but this means to be free from mental fog, to be clear-minded, to not be altered or intoxicated by the things of this world. There are lots of worldviews. There's lots of opinions. There's lots of, lots of things out there in this world that can alter our minds, that can alter the way that we think. I think for these Christians that he's writing to specifically, I think the persecution that they are going through can alter their mind. I think when you're going through persecution, it's very easy to start looking at that persecution and focusing on how hard your life is instead of focusing on how great Christ is. Instead of remembering what Christ has done for us, instead of remembering the grace that Jesus gave to us when he died on the cross, when he rose from the grave, and he has given us his spirit within us. So instead of focusing on that, we're going to focus on the menial, small trials and tribulations of this world. Distractions of this world can distort our thinking, but we are called to be sober-minded, clear of thought, unaltered, thinking clearly. So as you are prepared for action and you are sober-minded, what are we called to do? We're called to set our hope fully on the grace of Jesus. And hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is not crossing your fingers 
and hoping for the best. Hope is a confident expectation that we can put our trust and our faith in. That's what it means to hope in the grace of Jesus. So in our trials and persecutions, our eyes are still set on our heavenly prize. In our trials and persecutions, we still remember what Jesus has done for us. So even though we are going through this now, even though we are exiles in this place now, we know that one day we will be fully with Jesus. We will be without blemish, that every tear will be wiped away. We have already experienced his grace in salvation. But one day, when we are no longer here, we're no longer breathing, we're no longer in these bodies, that grace will be fully revealed to us. With unveiled face, we'll be able to look upon Christ in all his glory. That's the hope that we look forward to. And so when we are tempted to put our faith, put our hope, put our trust in anything in this world, any of the lesser things of this life, we have to remember where our hope truly lies, and that's in Christ. That's in what he has done for us. So remember the prize, eyes on the prize. Sounds like a pregame speech, doesn't it? Get ready for action. Clear your minds and set your eyes on the goal ahead. Set your eyes on the prize, what we work so hard for. Jesus' grace is the thing that drives us. It's the thing that helps us continue on. I get the imagery of going out on a journey, right? Before you go out on a journey, you got to make sure that you're prepared. You got to make sure that you have all your equipment. You can't be going out on your journey in robes and flip-flops. Put your house slippers away. Prepare yourself for action. And be clear-minded. Make sure you get a good night's rest before you go on that journey. Make sure that you remember where you are going. Keep your eyes on the prize, on the end goal, the end destination, which is heaven, which is being with Jesus. Our second point is that we are to be different. Verse 14 through 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Everybody loves grace, don't they? Everybody like, that's the thing that makes the gospel so beautiful. Like, maybe you know some people that, that don't like religion. Maybe you like some people that don't like Christianity. Let me just take a wild guess. Grace, forgiveness, is not the part they have an issue with. That's what makes the gospel so beautiful, isn't it? That we were forgiven, that we were given some grace that we didn't deserve, that we could never earn, that, uh, that God bestowed on us unlimited grace, and we deserved zero grace. Like, that's not the problem. And I think because of that, we have a tendency, maybe as Christians or churchgoers, to misuse the grace of God, that we love the grace of God, but we ignore the God's call on our life to holiness. That we can abuse God's grace so that we never have to change so we don't have to work on ourselves, so we don't have to look at those areas of our lives that are messy and dirty and gross. We don't want to change, at least not too much. We don't want to change to where people look at us like we're weird. We don't want to change to the point where it's uncomfortable and I have to start letting go of things that I really enjoy in my life. 
But God has called us to holiness. And I think that this is true because I've seen it in my own heart and I've seen it in my own life. It's not easy to change. It's not easy to be different. But how does Peter call us to be different? First thing he says is, do not be conformed to the patterns of your former ignorance. You need to be different than you used to be. That's what he's saying here. Peter knows how this works, right? Remember, he is writing to Christians. And he knows that as Christians, there has been a moment where we have said, I'm going to start living my life for God that I I have received the grace that he has given me. I love the grace. That's awesome. I'm forgiven that all my sins are wiped clean, that I one day get to go to heaven where there's like little angels flying around and streets of gold and all that stuff. I get that. That's amazing. I love it. And so you start on that journey. And then what happens? The old you starts to creep in. Your old sins start to rear their ugly head again. I, uh, I ran cross country as a sophomore in high school. I wasn't good at it, but I wanted to get in better shape because I played soccer and I felt like it would help me. You know, it was off season, so I didn't have anything else going on. And uh, one of the races that we had, um, my high school baseball team decided to join uh, the race. Listen, I don't know why. I like baseball, but you're not running further than 360 feet at a time. Honestly, the furthest you're probably running is from the dugout to center field if you're the center fielder. Like, I don't know why they were doing cross country. They must have been really bad at that week, and the coach was trying to punish them. But at the start of the race, cross country, you, you have all these people lined up. There's like 150, 200 people in the race, right? And so we're all lined up, and then bang, they shoot a gun because this is Texas. And uh, <laughs> probably was actual ammo. Um, and, and as soon as this race starts, what do you see? You see 15 baseball players out in front. Woo, man, our baseball team was some athletes. And it was really, really impressive for the first quarter mile. <laughs> After the qu- first quarter mile, like, like I said, I'm not good. I'm in like the middle of the pack. But by the half mile mark, I'm just passing them. One after the other. They're starting to do this thing. You know, where your muscles start to give out and you're like acting like you're running, but you're really going slower than if you were just walking. And it it reminds me of this Christian life, right? The Christian life is a long race. And you can't live this Christian life based off the momentum at the beginning of the race. That it's going to get hard. It's going to have to struggle. And it's an everyday process of you. What do we do? We set our hope on Jesus. We set our hope on the grace of God. It's not that easy. And in our Christian life, if we decide to live for Jesus, inevitably, if you are not pursuing that every single day, there is going to be drift. Drift never makes you end up at the place you want to go. You only ever drift away from where you want to be. So if we aren't pursuing Christ daily, we are going to drift back into our old selves. But we have received the grace that saves us, right? We have salvation And that salvation compels us to be different. That we were once living in darkness, but now we are living in his marvelous light. That we were dead in our sins, but God made us alive with Christ. That the old has passed away and the new has come. Right? If this is true, then why do we look like the old? Why do we look like we're dead? Why do we look like we're walking around in the dark? It's because we drift back into it if we aren't consistently pursuing Christ. And so this means that we shouldn't look like the rest of the world. Church, you hear me? We shouldn't look like the rest of the world. 
What does it say? You shall be holy for I am holy. This is a quote specifically from Leviticus where God is talking to the nation of Israel and he is setting them up as a nation for himself. And he is giving them laws, civil laws. He is giving them um, uh, these rules that they should follow that would consecrate them, that would set them apart as a people for God. So they would look different from the pagan nations around them. God has done the same with us. God has saved you so that you could be set apart and be a light in this world. And we lose our witness for Jesus. We lose our witness to others when we look just like everybody else. But we aren't just holy because it helps people see that we are different. We aren't just holy so that we look like Jesus' people, but we are holy because the righteousness, the holiness, the perfection of God deserves it. If you follow a king who we sing about being perfect and righteous and sitting on the throne but yet you live your life on your own accord, what do you think about that king? The righteousness and the holiness of God deserves our obedience. The righteousness of God is not trivial. It's not a small deal. We can't just focus on his grace and ignore his holiness. Remember, this is written to Christians. This is written to people who have already accepted, who have already received salvation. So we don't pursue holiness to try to earn salvation. We don't pursue holiness to try to earn God's love and affections. Apart from God, it's just behavior modification. But because we have received grace, because we are made new, we devote our lives to God. So as we delight in God's goodness, we begin to change. Every aspect of our lives begin to change when we focus our lives on Jesus, when we are devoted to him, when we take delight in him, when we spend time in his word, when we spend time in prayer, his Holy Spirit will change and transform us from the inside out. So instead of looking like our old selves, we begin to look like Christ. That's the gospel. That's the power of the spirit that lives inside of us. And so I have a question for you. Are the things that you longed for still appealing to you? Are the things that appealed to you before you knew Christ still the things where you find your joy and your happiness? Would you say that the activities you partake in lead you towards holiness? The things that you pour into your mind, do they lead you towards holiness or do they lead you toward the world? the movies, the music, the podcasts that you listen to. Listen, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're sinful. There are things in this God that we have freedom in Christ, that we do have grace, abounding grace that never ends. So it doesn't necessarily mean that these things are sinful, but do they lead you to a devotion of God or a devotion of the world? Do they lead your heart more towards people or more towards Christ and his goodness? I think we can sometimes think, well, I have grace, so I can do this thing, and it's going to help me relate to this person better. Was it leading you towards holiness? Was it leading you towards acceptance of men? 
So I think you can sum it up with this. Would you do the things that you do in your life if Jesus was sitting right beside you? Does this necessarily mean it's a sin, but would you do it if Jesus was sitting beside you? I think there's sometimes we were like, would you speak like that if your mama was around you? Would you speak like that if your grandma was around you? How much greater is the holiness of Jesus than your grandma? <laughs> would you live your life the way you do if Jesus was with you? So just because we've been given grace doesn't mean we ignore the call for holiness. We're called to be holy. We're called to be different. We're called to be set apart. We are set apart from sin. We are set apart from the world, but we are also set apart to God and to devotion and to purity with him. Our third point this morning is remember. The next few verses, Peter gives us a couple motivations of why we should pursue holiness. So the first one is remember who your father is. Verse 17 Remember who your father is. When we remember who our father is, it changes our attitude that our father requires holiness. Why? Because yes, he is a good dad who loves us. God is a father who cares for us and shows us compassion and grace over and over and over again. But our father is also a righteous judge. Right? We can't separate those two things. That God is fully gracious, but he is also a righteous judge. And so it says we should conduct ourselves with fear, right? Fear here doesn't mean that we are scared of our father. Fear here doesn't mean that we hide from our father, but fear means that we operate with reverence and respect for our dad. Because any good father who loves their kid still disciplines their child when they're disobedient. And so we remember that our Father is good, but He's also holy. And one day we're going to have to stand before Him and make an account for the way that we lived our life. The second one is remember where you came from. Right? This is starting to sound like a, maybe you got a mom or a dad, you're like, hey, remember who you represent. Remember where you came from. Remember what house you were raised in, Right? Remember your father and remember where you came from, that you were ransomed. That all of us, you, me, we were in the possession of a hostile enemy. That we were in chains, we were in bondage, and God ransomed us. He bought us back out of that. I watch movies where they're like, they want a ransom, and the U.S. government's always like, no, we don't do ransoms. But our God, he did the ransom. He paid what needed to be paid to free us from that situation. This word ransom, this word redeemed in the Greek would have been well known to Peter's audience. You see, in this Greco-Roman time, in this time period, um, there were, you could have people to be put in slavery, right? And into servitude to another person. And so they lived their lives and they, they earned a living quarters. They earned food for themselves, uh, but they were in the servitude of somebody else. And the only way that they could get out of servitude to that person is if another person came in, paid the price for them, and set them free. Right? And that is what happened with us. We were in bondage. We inherited what? We inherited the feudal ways of living that our forefathers have passed down for us all the way back to Adam, all the way back to the first sin. What has been passed down to us? Sin. Sin. 
The only thing that's been passed down to us is living in this world, not living for Christ, not living in righteousness. So we have received feudal living. We have been enchained. We have been in bondage to that way of life. But we were purchased out of it. God paid the price for you. God paid the price so that you didn't have to live the life that you thought was bringing you joy. You didn't have to live the life of searching and in the dark. And when you were dead in your sins, dead. And he paid that price, not with silver or gold, not with the most precious items of this world, but he paid it with the precious blood of his son. He paid it with a perfect spotless lamb named Christ. Think of who you were. Think of the bondage and futile ways that you lived. Lost, searching, lonely, spinning your wheels to find any sort of true joy and contentment in this life. I'm guessing you were coming up empty a lot. And God saved you. So how does our section of text end this morning? Verse 20 and 21 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This is Jesus. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in Christ. Jesus existing as part of the Holy Trinity before time began, came down and made himself uh, and put himself in the flesh came to earth on our behalf so that he could save us, right? What does it say? For the sake of us. And he fixed our relationship with God, right? We were separated from this holy God. God is holy. He is set apart. He is perfect. He is unique. And we are sinners in bondage. And what Jesus did for us is he fixed that relationship. He reconciled that relationship so that we could have a right standing with God. And that is where our faith and our hope lies. Do you see the full circle that Peter wrote today? We set our hope on God's grace and his goodness. Set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus. As we live our lives of holiness, holiness and devotion to him because He's our father who is a righteous judge that saved us from the bondage that we once lived in. And that's where our hope is at. It's a full circle. That is the life of a Christian. That when we look at the grace of Jesus, it compels us to live lives of holiness because God is deserving of it. And he's deserving of it because he has saved us. Look at where we were. Then we are reminded of that goodness. So we set our hope back on it. We devote ourselves to him again. This is Peter's pep talk. That's, that's the pep talk to the Christian. If you're going to live your life, this is what you need to do. Here's our, here's our main point for the day. I'll just sum it up easily. The grace we receive fuels the holiness that we pursue. It's not in our own power. It's not in our own white knuckling that we pursue holiness, but it is the grace that we receive. It fuels the holiness that we pursue in our lives. 
So we are to focus on that grace. Never forget where we came from. Never forget what Christ has done for us. The gospel is just as important to us today as it was the day that we first heard it. As the day that we first received the gospel and we received the grace of Jesus, it is just as important for us today. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis, and I want to close with it. It says, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him. But trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of you. Let us thank God for that today.